0: good morning it's good to see all your faces my name is uh, pastor nate and i am thankful to be here in god's house worshiping with all of you Uh, one of my passions is raising and developing others in their gifts and in their leadership Uh, the reason that i am a pastor today is because all along the way starting from when i was a teenager people gave me opportunity to use and develop my gifts and I personally like to view our church as a a training and sending church, Um, because we kind of have a culture here of, hey, you got a gift, come use it. Uh, We have room for you. We have opportunity, or we'll we'll find a way for you to use it. Um, I include myself in that category, uh, but I also think of other people who've been developed here or sent out in some way. I'm thinking like Brad Kaspar and Jake Evans, who will be here next week, thinking of Sarah Johnson in Almas, and Marina, and the Ramoses, all of our current interns, Eliana, who's been serving with us the past three years. It's important for us to raise up and develop, especially our young people, so that servants of God are equipped to go out into the harvest. And so to that end, uh, we're having our intern, Jonathan Connors, preach for us this morning, preaching his very first sermon to you. I think that's super exciting. Is that not, is that not exciting? Yes. Uh, He's well prepared, but I hope you'll give him some encouragement after he's done today, but let's welcome Jonathan up as he brings us the word this morning.
1: Thank you, Pastor Nate. Uh, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good. We praise you this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to hear from your word God, as our prayer earlier acknowledged, uh, there are certainly some um, challenges with this passage. But God, I pray that it would ultimately give us hope, um, that we'd be able to go and love. God, help help me speak your words this morning. In your name, we pray. Amen. Hello, friends. It is so good to be with you all this morning. Thanks, Kevin, for uh, reading the scripture. That was wonderful. I'm actually gonna start with a little recap of some things that we've covered so far in this The World's Greatest Sermon. So we started with the Beatitudes, where Jesus flips the script for what it meant to be blessed. Then we have Jesus forming Team Salt and Light, where we get a glimpse of our purpose here on earth. Then Jesus established himself as the fulfillment of the law, gave us a glimpse of his purpose here on the earth. Then Jesus preached the power of reconciliation, the importance of making it right with our brothers and sisters. Then he gave us a framework for holy sexuality and holy marriage. And then last week we heard about the power of our yes, the importance of our commitment to God and how that should really flow out of his commitment to him or his commitment to us. And that brings us to today's passage. So I want to thank Pastor Nate again for giving me the opportunity to preach this morning. Um. This passage is probably one of the more iconic in the Bible. I'd imagine if you asked a random person on the street who wasn't a Christian, they would have heard of the terms, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. Um, They've become sort of buzzwords in our society, things that social psychologists might praise as being valuable rules, but that people don't really practice day to day. You know, it fascinates me, the people in the world who would accept, if not exalt the ethics of Jesus without actually hearing his message. And that's actually what the temptation is going to be with this passage. Now, when I say ethics or an ethic, I mean a way of living, a rule for life, a code by which you make decisions. So don't hear me wrong here. The ethic of Jesus is so important scholar william barclay writes that this passage is the essence of the christian ethic it is the conduct which should dis- which should distinguish the christian from other men god wants us to stand out to shine his light we heard about that a few weeks ago and if we engage with these commands from jesus and are obedient we will certainly stand out but if we stop with the ethical rules we miss out on what Jesus is ultimately pointing us to. and That's his radical life and his loving death. In this message, I'm going to share four heart attitudes or really truths um, that if we can believe, they're going to help us live out the love that Jesus is inviting us to here. Friends, this love is immensely different than what, what the rest of the world lives. Jesus says that Our job is not to get even, but to shock people with love. But this love is immensely challenging, as we're going to see. Each one of these heart attitudes is going to be paired with what scholar Craig Keener calls a graphic illustration of what living like a Christian needs to look like. But do not fret, friends, for each one of these also comes with a glimpse of the hope that we have in Christ that shows us how we can ultimately live like him. So, before I hit the first heart attitude, let's dive into the law that Jesus is fulfilling here. Verse 38 says, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Now, Jesus here is referencing a concept that shows up in the Old Testament three different times. Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. This concept of equal retribution uh, is common in many societies dating all the way back to the Mesopotamians. Um, The Romans had a name for it. They called it lex talionis. Um, And it meant that the punishment should resemble the, the offense in both kind and degree. Now, as much as the phrase an eye for an eye has a bit of a negative connotation today, this was actually an important law, not because it permitted vengeance, but because it limited it. Picture this. Two toddlers are a little annoyed with one another and they're gonna get into a, a bit of a tiff. Um, one pokes the other, the other one pokes back a little harder and then the first one leads with a shove and before you know it, they're wrestling on the ground. The tendency is for the payback to be a little bit more than what the first offense was. So. The goal of a law like this was to minimize the damage done by allowing for just enough retribution. I poke you, you poke me, we're done. Now, the reason we see this behavior in toddlers is because it's a bit of a natural human instinct. We want to fight back. We want to defend ourselves. And that's what the world tells you to do. You're just gonna let them push you around Have some self-respect. They do the same thing back to you. But Jesus is going to flip this human instinct on his head as he's done before, inviting us to change our perspective on how we respond to evil. The reason he says to us, do not resist the evil person, is because that's exactly what we want to do. Jesus calls us to something different. Again, our job is not to get even, but to shock people with love. He proceeds to give four examples of of situations where we might feel the need to defend or protect something of ours. Out of each of these, we can draw a truth, a heart attitude that frees us to live out the radical non-resistance of Jesus. Let's dive into the first one. You don't have to defend your honor. When was the last time you got slapped in the face? For me, it was fourth grade, recess. It's a rough game of two-hand touch. For you, maybe it was elementary school as well. If ever, we live in a society that, uh, you know, violence is, not super common for at least most of us in this room. Um, in fact, uh, my guess is for you, uh, you you will never actually have to live out this invitation of Jesus to turn the other cheek in response to being slapped. Um, but that's actually okay. Jesus isn't talking about violence here. He's talking about honor. Now, Pastor Nate, come up here. I want to do a little de- demonstration of, of Jesus' illustration. So, if I'm gonna slap Pastor Nate on the right cheek, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm right-handed, so I, the only way that I can do this is if I'm gonna backhand him across the face. I'm not actually gonna slap you, it's okay. If I'm gonna backhand him across the face. Now, this is significant. Thank you, Pastor Nate, you can sit down. The reason this is significant is because this act of backhanding someone across the face was considered not just an act of violence, but a major insult an attack against someone's honor. Now, so when Jesus invites us to turn the other cheek, rather than reacting, he's saying, you don't have to defend your honor. It's it's not your responsibility. Friends, this is good news. Scholar Craig Keener says, because our lives become forfeit to us when we begin to follow Christ, we have no honor of our own to lose. All of our honor is bestowed on us by Christ alone. Human honor really should mean very little to us in light of our position with God. This means that if someone insults us, we don't have to fight back. If someone makes an attack on our honor, disrespecting us in some way, we don't gossip about them or plot some way to get back at them or complain about them to our friends. We don't have to do those things. Out of our place of God-given honor, we can instead respond with the love of Christ. Paul confirms this understanding. In Acts 20, 24, Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders, and he says, But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. Now, the word in the Greek here that's translated dear uh, can also be translated as honorable or, or uh, having honor. actually comes from the same root as the verb to honor. So what Paul is saying here is that he does not consider his life to be honorable for himself. And all of this is for the sake of finishing the work that Christ has laid out for him. Brothers and sisters, we, like Paul, must not let the defense of our honor Get in the way of the work that Jesus has for us, the love that he has for us to show to others. Let us strive to lay down our tendency to defend our honor for the sake of showing Christ's love to those who would insult us. So, the first heart attitude is that we don't have to defend our honor. The second is like it you don't have to protect your rights. This next illustration is one where someone's rights are being threatened in court. And Jesus frees them to give up even more of their rights in response. Jesus says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Let's give some context. The typical Jewish person had two main articles of clothing, an inner shirt and an outer coat. And this outer coat doubled as their bedding. That they slept with, so it, it, it was the more important of the two. In fact, it was so important that there were laws set up in the Old Testament to prevent people from having to go without it. Exodus twenty-two twenty-six 26 says, if you take your neighbor's cloak as security for a loan, you must return it before sunset. A Jewish person had every right to his or her outer cloak. So when Jesus illustrates this situation or someone's shirt is being sued and taken, and he invites us to give our outer cloak as well, he's saying, rather than legally fighting for what we believe we have the right to keep, we can lovingly give up even more. William Barclay articulates Jesus' argument in this way. He says, the Christian never stands upon his rights. He never disputes about his legal rights. He does not consider himself to have any rights at all. Paul has a similarly radical view when he talks about governing authorities in Romans 13. It's the idea that God has placed people in charge, rules in place for his purposes, but that he is ultimately on the throne. So whatever rights we've been given or have been taken from us, we don't have to fight for them. Romans 13 verse 2 says, Whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. Those who do so will bring justice... will bring judgment on themselves. Friends, this can certainly be a challenging concept, but it's an expression of profound trust in the Lord who we know is the ultimate authority. Friends, this is good news. Out of this heart of trust, we can refuse to fight back when someone would try to take our rights and then go love those people. We must have an attitude of non-resistance when our individual rights are being threatened. All right. So our second attitude was that we don't have to protect our rights. Next, we have the third heart attitude: you don't have to fight for your time. This illustration is maybe the most cryptic of the first or, of the four. Jesus says, "If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles." Maybe for some of you, like me, this brings to mind middle school gym class where everyone was forced to run the mile. <laughs> uh, but something tells me Jesus didn't have fitness testing back in his day. Um, but that's okay. There's a different explanation for what Jesus is saying. As, El- as Eliana described in the, uh, in the children's message, um, it is widely agreed that Jesus here is referring to a Roman law. Um, now, the Romans Uh, especially the soldiers, were often traveling from territory to territory, um, and their gear was often very heavy. And so the government set up a rule that allowed them to force anyone else to carry their gear for up to one mile, give them a little break. Now, the Jews hated this rule. You can only imagine how it was abused by the Romans. Not only did the person being forced have to exhaust energy and time to drag all the gear a whole mile. But then when they were done, they were left a mile from where they started. And most of all, the Jews hated this because it was viewed as supporting the Roman government, who was enemy number one for many of them. So this going one mile is considered both inconvenient and unpopular. Now the scenario is a little more relatable. We've all been put in situations where we were made to do something that we didn't really want to do. Our time is often threatened, and when this is the case, the tendency is to fight for it back, or at the very least, do a poor job at whatever it is we were uh, being forced to do in order to get back to what we wanted to be doing in the first place. Jesus, again, is going to invite us to do the exact opposite. He says, whatever you're being forced to do, do it more. Don't worry about the time it's going to take. Friends, the Bible makes it clear that our time is ultimately not our own. The Lord is sovereign over all of it. Proverbs 16.9 says, In their hearts humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. This is not a limitation, but rather a freedom. With this heart attitude of our time is not our own, when things come up, we can acknowledge God's work in it and sovereignty over it, and then move forward with love. Rather than focusing on using our time as we would like, let's focus on how we can show the love of Jesus to others, especially when it's inconvenient or unpopular. Now, before I get into the final illustration, I want to highlight something about the previous three. I call it the shock factor. In all of them, Jesus is not only inviting us to refrain from responding negatively when when something of ours is threatened, but to actually respond in a way that moves radically in the opposite direction. Jesus wants our response to evil to be shocking for the perpetrator. There's a cool story from a pretty popular musical that I think illustrates this point well. The scene is the French Revolution, 1800s. Our character is Jean Valjean. Um, Now, Jean Valjean was a slave for many, many years and he's just gotten released. Um, He's wandering from town to town trying to find a job, but unfortunately, people won't often hire former slaves. Um, So he's hungry, he's cold, finds himself in a little corner outside of a church. Well, fortunately for him, a priest comes by and um, shows him kindness. He invites him in, um, gives him food to eat, gives him a place to sleep. Um, Jean Valjean doesn't really know how to respond to this, but he gladly accepts. Um, But he's still in a bit of survival mode. Um, So he decides that he's going to get up in the middle of the night, and steal some of the priest's precious, precious silver china. So he gets up, he puts it in a burlap sack, and takes off. Well, He's a little bit loud, and so the police catch him. Um, they drag him back to the priest, and they say, Sir, this, this man claims that you gave him these things. We know there's no way that's true. Um, you just say the word, and uh, you can have your stuff back. We'll take him and be on our way priest looks down at Jean Valjean, and looks, then looks up the policeman and says, this man speaks the truth. I did give him these. But then he looks down at Jean Valjean and he says, but sir, you left in such a hurry. You forgot that I also gave you these. And he hands him two more, even more precious candelabras. Jean Valjean and the police are equally shocked. Um, the priest sends the police on his way and Jean Valjean is changed. He goes from there, be, becomes an honest man, takes the silver and uses it to start a life for himself, ultimately becomes the mayor of a town, and the story goes on from there. But the point is, just like in Jesus' second illustration, the priest had something wrongly taken from him. But he, he had every right to send Jean Valjean back to being a slave. But instead, he gave away something that was even more precious. The priest was not concerned about his rights or his things. And this shocking act of love changed the heart of Jean Valjean. Going back to the Barclay quote that I mentioned earlier, the Lord wants our behavior to make us stand out from the people around us so that ultimately those we interact with might end up praising him. That is the shock factor. And this is certainly a piece of what Jesus wants us to take away from these illustrations. So we had our third heart attitude that we don't have to fight for our time. Now we have the last heart attitude. You don't have to cling to your resources. This illustration seems to stand out a bit from the others. Jesus says, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Jesus is talking more about inconvenience here than evil, but the question remains the same. What is your attitude when your resources are being threatened? Friends, I'll confess, this is maybe the biggest area that I have to grow. When I see someone begging for money on the street, my first response is immediately defense. I come up with about a dozen reasons why I don't need to give this person any money, none of which hold any weight, and I will walk my way past them. Now, Jesus here is inviting me to different, not only in action, but in heart. Obviously, he wants me to give back, but even if I were to give all of the money in my heart, or all of the money in my wallet, that doesn't solve the problem of my heart. My, 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 my attitude is still one of selfishness and greed, not of love. Because that's really what Jesus is about. First John 3, 17 says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Yes, Jesus wants us to give. He says so right here, give to the one who asks you. And he wants us to understand that The tendency in our heart to defend our resources is destroying us. It's not how Jesus wants us to live, and it prevents us from loving his children who are in need. Christians, you do not need to cling to your resources, for the Lord is the one who provides. (laughs) This is good news. Let us grow towards this attitude of open-handedness with the resources that God has given us, both financial and physical. So, the fourth heart attitude, you don't have to cling to your resources. These four ideas are the ethics of Christianity. Now, I have two clarifications to make before I get to my final point. First, it is always important to read a text in light of everything else that the Bible says. It would be possible to read this text and think that Jesus doesn't want us to oppose injustice. Rather, just turn the other cheek. But that's not it at all. The Lord is deeply concerned with justice, helping the poor, fighting for those who can't fight for themselves. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. What Jesus is is discussing is our heart posture in response to evil enacted towards us. He never wants there to be thoughts or actions of retaliation or revenge. Only his love, and particularly his love for the person enacting the evil towards us. This heart of love leads us to action, which, as Jesus said, needs to be a shocking demonstration of his heart. Secondly, I want to prevent us from going too far in a different direction. It would be possible to read this text and believe that God doesn't like your honor or your rights or your time, your resources, Friends, he, he gave you those things. He wants you to use them well for his glory. But again, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about how you use your things. He's talking about what is your response when those things are threatened or being taken. Is your response to fight to get them back? Or is it to trust the one who gave them to you in the first place? Is it to try and get back at the person who took them from you or to show them Christ's love. I think Paul summed it up well in 1 Thessalonians 5.15. He says, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. These ethical rules are important. This is how Christ wants us to live. But if after reading this text, we stop there, we are not doing justice to Jesus' message. This this is where my sermon title comes in. It's more than just an ethic. N.T. Wright has a fantastic quote that highlights this well. He says, the Sermon on the Mount isn't just about us. If it was, we might admire it as a fine bit of idealism, but then we'd return to our normal lives. It's about Jesus himself. Friends, N.T. Wright is right. This would be a sad message if Jesus told us all these things that we had to do and then left us to go do them. Because as you all have experienced, we can't. These things are immensely challenging. Even with the help of Christ, we will fail. But friends, there is good news. Jesus, after preaching these things to his disciples, might as well have just screamed at them, Watch me, because he went and he did each and every one of the things that he told us to do. His journey to the cross is the ultimate example of him living these things out. He was mocked and beaten by soldiers. They took every ounce of his human honor, and he didn't lift a finger. He stood in court with every right to condemn each and every person who was condemning him but he stayed silent. He carried the heaviest piece of Roman equipment until he could carry it no longer. And then he gave up his life on a cross for the very people who put him there. Friends, Jesus is more than our teacher. He's more than a good ethicist. He didn't just understand what love looks like. He is what love looks like. This means that it's, it's not ultimately about knowing the rules. It's about knowing Jesus. It's not ultimately about knowing what to do. It's about knowing what he did. Because he did it for you and he did it for the evil person. So, when your honor is threatened, when your rights are at stake, when your time or your resources are being taken, look inward, examine your heart. What, what's your attitude? What are you trying to protect? Because whatever it is, it's in God's hands, not yours. And this is good news, not sad news. We have reason for hope, it gives us the freedom to love shockingly. Jesus wants you to experience this freedom and to so let it make your heart attitude and your lifestyle one of radical non-resistance. Picture how Jesus lived this out. Picture him on the cross. Let this be an encouragement for you to love the, the evil person in those moments just as Jesus does.